Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. So one of the things that is truly astounding about this country that we live in is the number of people who are in jail, who have been in jail, who are on probation. It's around 7 million people who are currently right now either in prison, on probation, under some sort of supervision. What's even more astounding is the number of people who have been put to death in this country uh, who have later been exonerated, who were found to be not guilty after they were put in the electric chair or however they were sentenced to death. So today we're actually going to talk about one of those people, and my guest today is Ed Zwick. He is the director of the new movie Trial by Fire. It is a crazy, astounding story. I remember reading it in 2009 in The New Yorker, uh, the first version of this, and just scratching my head. It stuck with me, still sticks with me today. I think about it often. And um, and I'm really excited to have Ed on the show to talk about not just this case, but a lot of other things um, around people in power and how they get away with the things that they get away with. So without further ado. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. This is very, very exciting. So uh, you are sitting here because one of the my favorite articles ever written period, uh, is the article that is based on your movie, Trial by Fire, written by David Grant. It is an astounding piece of journalism. And so when I found out you were doing the movie, I had to have you on. I have so many questions. So for the people who don't know about this, sure. we're going to have to tell them the story, but I'm just curious how you came to it first. Uh, first of all, I, I had known David's work even long before he used to write for the New Republic, and he'd written several wonderful pieces, and you probably know those too. And I just read the piece in The New Yorker one day and was, you know, filled with this kind of inchoate rage, um, but also fascinated in terms of his ability to tease narrative out of this circumstance and to really give it all the layers that it, that it has. And typically what one does is I just inquired as to its availability. And I found, curiously enough, that it was also being pursued by someone who I knew very well, a very old friend of mine with whom I'd never worked, a woman named Alan Stewart. We met many, many years before when I'd done my first movie, and we called each other and said, well, why don't we partner? Little did we know, though, that that would begin a 10-year odyssey, which wow. led us to this moment. So let's tell the listeners what this story is sure. and its insanity. Well, I mean, it's... it. it begins in uh, early in the morning in Corsicana, Texas, in which um, a man is asleep and his three infant children are asleep in the room. And the house is uh, 
on suddenly discovered to be on fire and uh, he, in the confusion he uh, tries to find them or so he claims and uh, the house burns down and they die his wife is uh, has been out of the house at work and he is immediately um, arrested and put on trial it's the worst defense that anyone could ever be given the jury is out for 45 minutes and within days he's on death row and he then spends 12 years on death row in Texas, which is a kind of uh, the sort of death industrial complex there. Mm -hmm. And uh, this woman named Elizabeth Gilbert, curiously enough, another Elizabeth Gilbert, mm. uh, is asked if she wants to correspond with a, with a prisoner. And in a kind of moment of almost random curiosity, she says yes. And her life at that moment is in a kind of odd crossroads too. Her husband has just died and uh, her children are grown and she does. Little does she know that that then leads her into this relationship with this man whom she assumes to be what everyone else had assumed him to be, which is the other he was uh, a metalhead. He was uh, doing a lot of drugs. He had had some brushes with the law, some abuse issues, in, in, by every measure, disreputable. And she goes and meets him. Now, this is already after he's been in prison for eight years, most of it or a lot of it in solitary. And they begin this relationship, which flowers in totally unexpected ways. And and she begins to take up the cause of of his case, which has already lost on several appeals, and it tells that story. So does she? Um, there's so many characters in the story, um, and I'm, I'm going to struggle to figure out which to start with. But let's actually start with him. Mm -hmm. So I remember when I read the article, and now that I've seen the film, there are these things that um, that the investigators. Uh, mm -hmm automatically it's like they, they assume mm -hmm. are negative things like he's into metal music mm -hmm. oh, okay great so you like metallica that and but they say that that means he, he's a devil worshiper that right. he's uh he's had a few brushes with the law that automatically makes him someone that could kill his own children there are all these things do, do, do you think from all the research that you've done and uh, leading up to the film and everything that that they just they went in there and they said, okay, we're going to find him guilty? Or was it that they just had this assumption that he was guilty? Well, there, there, there are two factors. One, one has to do with the junk science of, of arson yep. um, uh, investigation, which by the end of this story is so wholly disproven as ultimately to become thrown out nationally. But in its moment, it's a kind of voodoo. There are all these um, very arcane... Uh, homilies about what fire is and how it comes. And it turns out that it's just a kind of um, weird made up thing. And these guys had been living as had many arson investigators been going by these unscientific uh, measures forever and had in fact convicted many, many people over the years. Yeah, thousands. Thousands of yeah. people had been convicted for those reasons. So there's that. There's the great line in the movie which uh, stuck out to me where uh, the fire investigator says, you know, everyone thinks that fire uh, removes evidence, but it actually creates it. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just, it's all bullshit. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of that actually is from the transcript 
because the transcript is a remarkable document. And the other part, though, I think is more ineffable, and that has to do with our need, society's need to assign blame and to look for that scapegoat very quickly so as to better understand the random chaos of accident and tragedy. And in this case, uh, he's exactly the kind of person that society wants to pin this on and to get rid of. Do you remember um, hearing about this trial because it was in the news uh, or the story before you read David Grant's piece? Or was no. it never? No, I don't think it was actually very well popularized. Actually, I read a piece. Um, uh, Nick Kristoff was, was being interviewed, and he's worked very hard uh, uh, on behalf of a guy named Kevin Cooper here in California, who's in death row. And he said, if only he had known about the story at the time, he would have loved to have weighed in on it. So I don't think it was very well known at all at the moment. So, so as the story goes on, he, he spends eight years in jail, mostly in solitary, and uh, he befriends this woman, Elizabeth, and she qu- quite quickly starts to, working with the Innocence Project, starts to mm-hmm. find all of these things that are just kind of yeah. blatantly, obviously... Exculpatory. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and they, they are the catalog of prosecutorial misconduct in, in all of its forms. It's the use of a jailhouse snitch who trades his testimony um, uh, for the sake of a reduced sentence. It's evidence that is withheld. It's a, a, a defense attorney who is on the record as having thought him guilty and, and you know announced that to others even while trying to defend him, however pitiful a defense that was. And I guess it's also just this uh, knee-jerk attitude toward um, the death penalty uh, in the state of Texas. Well, that's that we'll get to because okay. that's the part that's going to get my blood boiling. So yeah. we'll, we'll wait, we'll All wait, right. we'll let it simmer for a minute before I get to Rick Perry and how much of a piece of shit he is. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, so when you uh, when you're doing the research for the movie, I mean, I've mm-hmm. written books and screenplays and things like that, and you kind of live with these characters. You and bet. I'm curious which character you found yourself living with. Well, what's very interesting to me um, is the character of of his wife. Uh, really fascinated me because initially she was there standing up for him and writing letters to Ann Richards, who was governor at the time, and then very much seemed to have abandoned him. And I think she was subject to all sorts of um, peer pressure, societal pressure uh, within her family, and, and even on her part, the need to sort of revise her imaginings so as to live with the circumstance of what happened. And uh, there's even some speculation that she was afraid that if he was innocent, that they might have come after her. But, but that really fascinated me. I know that she's a supporting character, but often when you're writing, um, the characters that are, uh, that are more ambiguous are the, are the most interesting. So I, I certainly was interested in her um, and interested in their, in their relationship. Did you talk to her at all for the no, movie? No, she's or? the one person we did not speak to. We spoke to, obviously, Elizabeth was there for us. Elizabeth spoke a great deal to me and to Laura. She gave us all of her letters with Todd, so I had benefit of all, their whole correspondence. And uh, I have to say that she she was, the, the in addition to, to, the, to the wife, that the, the, there was an assumption maybe that Elizabeth was a kind of proper Houston housewife. And in fact, she was anything but that. She uh, was, had, had, was a, an aspiring playwright, had done little 
plays that you know produced in very small scale locally and uh was a very sophisticated very interesting person and what was most remarkable to me is how she looked upon this whole story ultimately as having been a thing that prepared her to deal with what befell her in the course of the story. So uh, w one thing that happens in the story and in the film is that um, leading up to the last days of, mm -hmm. um, of his life before he's executed, um, <clears throat> which is not giving anything away. No. <laughs> um, uh, there's all this evidence that comes up. There's mm -hmm. a, an expert fire investigator who talks about the fact that pretty much every aspect of the fire investigation is completely wrong. Right. Uh, who comes out. There's the, um, uh, the guy, the jailhouse snitch who, who says I was a jailhouse snitch. Mm -hmm. um, he, he recants his testimony. Recants his testimony. Uh, there's just there. They figure out that there was likely a uh, the space heater that mm -hmm. had caused it with this electrical problem. There's all these things, and yet the system was designed to completely ignore them. Yeah, is that was that an anomaly or is that an, is that normal? Oh, I think in in this particular case, um, there was a um, parole board, which, to the best of my knowledge, had never paroled anyone. And what it was referred to as death by facts, which is to say that there that when they put together that the the attempt of the, the when they sent forward the, the the new evidence, the scientific evidence that had been gathered, and then the, the stay of execution, it was faxed to all the members of the parole board who denied it without ever having meet ever having met. So mm -hmm. it was routine in some way that one would not grant parole, and then even. After um, the execution, the, there was a forensic uh, commission that was formed to try to investigate that, and uh, Rick Perry dissolved the commission. So that's so. Let's get to the Rick Perry part. <laughs> sure. So, which uh, I'm going to have to try to calm myself down here. I only had a couple of cups of coffee this morning, so I'm, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. So let's just say that I said to you, "Hey, um, a few years ago, you uh, you saw something happen, uh, and you told the cops." And uh, a, a guy did something that you thought he did to a woman or something, um, and you told the cops, and the guy was was put to death. And it turns out now I'm telling you, hey, it was the wrong guy. You wouldn't be able to sleep tonight. Like you would literally, you know, it would probably eat you yeah. alive. Yep. Rick Perry seems like he has a sense of pride about the number of people he's executed. Not yeah. just seems like he actually does. Yeah. Have a sense of pride. I mean, if, if if anything is more infuriating, it's the use of the death penalty as a political uh, mode of demagoguery. And I think that he and others in Texas and others, by the way, uh, nationally have chosen to somehow uh, increase their, their macho creds as, as being not just in favor of, but great advocates of the death penalty. And when you think about the death penalty as premeditated murder, which it is, um, what does that say about the appeal that they're making and to whom? Do you think that someone like Rick Perry, and we can't crawl inside of his head, we would, we would get very dirty, but uh, um, do you think that someone like Rick Perry uh, has any moment of like, oh, maybe I made a mistake, or do they, in their mind, they just, maybe they're sociopaths, I don't know, but in their mind, they just say, 
that person deserved it and could even justify it based on previous crimes. You know, it's funny. I, I ask myself that question about so many people, uh, so many aspects of society. You know, the people who are um, hiding uh, the, the the cancer statistics about clusters based on you know their discharge of waste into you know, populous, uh, populated areas. Um, you know, the, the guys at Brown and Williamson who had the, the, the awareness of the smoking deaths. I mean, any people like that who then go home to their families and coach Little League and, and tuck their children into bed, they must be capable of such extraordinary compartmentalization because I don't need, there can't be that many sociopaths. I, I, think, I think that it's a kind of um, ability to utterly dissociate uh, one aspect of your life from another. I, 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 it's interesting you say that because I, people keep asking me, I've been covering tech for, for a long time and people keep saying to me, is this person a sociopath? Is that person a sociopath? And my response is often yes, but maybe it's compartmentalization. I don't know, but it's, it's astounding that, you know, when you look at the story, um, of this guy who not only lost his three children, but, um, was put to death as a result of it. Uh, it's negligence and um, almost intentional uh -huh. uh, from so many people, um, from the prosecutor, from his defense attorney, from from everyone, and yet there are no repercussions. No. Um, well, they, they actually, they, the uh, the the DA uh, Jackson was brought up on um, the DA uh, who prosecuted. Yeah, it. Uh, yep. uh, to. Uh, uh, I think it was it was it was brought up on charges of prosecutorial misconduct by the bar, yeah. and and but he chose a jury trial in Corsicana, Texas, where he was um, exonerated. And so there's no repercussions for none. Him. No, he... and I think, but but let me. I just did one thing that occurs to me because you know Hannah Arendt talks about the banality of evil, and not about uh, the fact that it's uh, some pathology, and it, she gets down to the talking about people just wanting to hold on to their jobs. Yeah, and and someone wanting to be elected and to advance, I I think that there's a an absence of you know conscience and empathy, which are things which finally have to be learned. I'm not sure they're as innate as as we would like. You, so you think that that someone like that DA uh, didn't learn that. That didn't have empathy, and that's then therefore, well, well, or that well, justified it because it was his job. Well, or DAs are a pretty interesting group because prosecutors um, have to; they, they, they're they're judged by virtue of wins and losses, and they're also they live in a world where they see a lot of bad people, and they probably have some uh, way to reconcile it intellectually as saying. Um, in order to do what we do to get the people that we have to get to, um, that maybe occasionally one makes a mistake. And that's just, okay. I, I, it's hard for me to understand it, but, but yes. Do you think that, um, after this, this trial, these stories, this movie, has anything changed as a result of what happened? Well, uh, arson science has changed. Interestingly enough. Yes. There was another prisoner, another, uh, uh, person who was, uh, uh, arrested and in fact was exonerated in the state of Texas not long ago for arson where they where they used new science so that actually has been one and was that a direct result of the new science was the new yes. science a direct result of and how does the new science actually how do they know it actually works compared to the ones that they used it didn't 
Well, I mean, since I'm not an arson scientist myself, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough question. I just know that there are measures and, and metrics by which one can actually try to uh, ascertain the source of fire rather than through this sort of mythological way. But, but I was going to say something different. I think, I think there's a change that I sense culturally um, having to do with a trope that used to be crime and punishment seems to also have a, a counter movement of crime and innocence. And when I think of something what like... What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I think about the, the embrace of uh, the podcast of the Serial. Yep. The making of a Murderer. All these... these um, n there are many other you know, uh, people who are actually aware, I think, and growing awareness of injustice. And I think that's a legacy of having um, an, an, an unindicted, unpunished predator at the top of the system right now, that people have some greater awareness of, uh, and given the, the, the certain trials that have taken place um, publicly, you know, um, confirmation hearings and things like that, where people are aware that there is greater injustice in the system than, than they ever would have acknowledged before. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. We look at Donald Trump and we think um, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to America, but as a direct result of him, we have the Me Too movement. We have... Uh, exactly what you're talking about, yeah. this rise of, of wanting justice for things that we hadn't looked at and needed justice for in the past. And um, uh, it's interesting, I've never connected the serials and the making the murders and yours. And um, uh, I'm also told, I think, I think um, uh, they're doing, they're doing it, uh, Michael B. Jordan is going to adapt um, uh, Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Hmm. Another one, uh, really a, a, a fantastic story of the same, you know, ilk. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for a little spring cleaning here at Inside the Hive. And we're going to start with your mouth. That means that you are not brushing your teeth probably unless you have gotten a Quip toothbrush, which I have been raving about for the past few weeks. The Quip is an incredible toothbrush. It's truly changed the way I brush my teeth. Uh, and there's a new one out that is a kid's quip that has all the same incredible features, the two-minute timer, the guiding pulses, uh, but none of the childish gimmicks that come with kids' toothbrushes. It comes with a smaller brush head, so it fits little mouths better, uh, watermelon anti-cavity toothpaste, the rubber grips, and lots of colors that your kids will love. What's so amazing about the Quip is that you actually feel different when you use it compared to other toothbrushes. It's the first electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. They've backed over 25,000 dental professions. This is, I'm not kidding. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it really is an amazing, amazing toothbrush. And everyone in my family now has one, kids and Included. They are going to offer a very, very special limited time offer for us Hive listeners. For $25, if you go to getquip.com slash Hive, you can get your first refill pack for free and get started with your Quip. Once again, it's $25 at getquip, that's Q-U-I-P.com slash Hive. You get your first free refill pack. This toothbrush is going to change the way you brush your teeth. It's going to change the way you feel. It's going to make you healthier. Go to getquip.com slash hive. And trust me, just trust me, just trust me. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. 
The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. So do you think that society will ultimately change as a result of these stories when they learn that, I mean, it's so we've, we've heard all these stories for years about people that were put in jail for, mm-hmm. and, and were innocent and, um, and so on. And what's happened recently, which I, which is terrifying is, I mean, it's the, at the end of your film, you talk about the number of people who were exonerated. What is? Do you remember the number? It's, it's, like, a hundred, it's more than 150 over the last several years based just on DNA alone. But those were people that were on death row. within Often within days. And, uh, and so when you think about the fact that pre-DNA being used to exonerate these people, there must be hundreds yes. that were murdered. Have to have been. And do you think that that society will eventually kind of adapt and change to not want the death penalty well, as a result of this? or Well, I mean, uh, look, uh, it's very interesting what's happening because you have the same polarity in this conversation as you do in so many others at this moment. You've got Gavin Newsom coming out and talking about a moratorium. Other state legislatures, not even only blue states, trying to do the same thing. At the same time, you've got Donald Trump, who took a full-page ad out in the New York Times about the Central Park Five to have them put to death before they were even tried. And they were and, completely innocent. And they were innocent. And and recently is talking about putting drug dealers to death. So you have both these forces, you know, rising at the same time. Um, I mean, I'd like to think there'd be enough oxygen in the conversation of the debates to come that they would be included. My suspicion is it won't be. But, but, but there are activists who I talk to who believe that there is a, a sea change that is taking place. And look... You know, we all know that phrase that Obama, you know, cadged from King about the arc of history, you know, bending toward justice. And mm-hmm. and I do believe that when you take part in anything, you can't um, understand the the rate or even measure its its um, its time because. 150 years ago, a man could own another man in this country. Mm. And 30 years ago, um, we could drink while driving. And uh, Wait, we could, I, f- I didn't know that. You could drink while you drove? Well, I mean, I don't think mothers against drug driving. When, well, maybe it's less than, maybe more than 30 years ago. Wow. But 
But still, still, it's it's, it's, it's a change and smoking <laughs> yeah. in airplanes yeah. and 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 now same sex marriage. There are things that you know. Well, it's funny. I was watching an, an old news clip from 1968 last night, and the news guy is literally smoking a yeah. cigarette while he's yeah. And <laughs> and so so you know there are these um, tectonic shifts, shifts that, that yeah. happen. Yeah, it's just that when you do a piece like this or or get involved in any kind of grassroots activism. You are in for the long haul. It's a, so I was thinking about this in terms of the burning of Notre Dame. It is like the building of a cathedral. You know, when you begin to build a cathedral, you know you will never be alive to see it completed. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good analogy. Do you do you uh, do you believe that? So our prison system is is diabolical these days. It's um, 2.2 million prisoners, majority black and Hispanic. Um, all actually ironically points back to bill clinton's decision making and and, and joe biden uh and joe biden um uh back then there were three hundred thousand people in prison in the united Mm -hmm. states do you believe one of the things that's interesting is so i wrote a book um called american kingpin about the uh ross albrecht who started the silk road website Mm -hmm. um to buy and sell drugs and and so on and he is in prison for life um uh, two life sentences plus 40 years and there are certain people that say he should be, and there are certain people that say he shouldn't be because he tried to have people killed and so on. And and the question that I sometimes find so fascinating is there's a scene in your movie when uh, Todd is in prison and he's talking to the prison guard about uh, Victor Frankl mm-hmm. uh, and Man's Search for Meaning, mm-hmm. the amazing, incredible book about Victor Frankl when he was in um, Auschwitz and uh, trying to find meaning out of life from there. Do you think that... You know, you have these kind of these different viewpoints where we've got people saying, "Okay, well, we shouldn't. Uh, we should take people out of prisons. There's too many people in prisons." And at the same time, we're saying we should stop putting people to death and keep them in prisons. Do you think there's ever a moment where there is a justification for the death penalty? Mm, I mean, I have, I have. A, my problems are not just about the unequal. Um, uh, execution of justice having to do with being you know black or poor yeah but i also look at the role of the state and i think that when we give the state power of any kind it tends to abuse it that could be pertained that could pertain to uh surveillance data gathering uh ancillary damage to drone strikes and i think that that you know, there are certain ways in which the state is already responsible for deaths in terms of safety standards, uh, toxicity. Uh, there are any number of ways. That, but to 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 suggest that the state should um, actually do that monstrous thing that it's attempting to eliminate is, I think, to uh, I don't know. I think I find it to just to be so. Um, the opposite of what civil society is supposed to be. And and I look at systems in Europe in which um, they have even limited sentences, mm. uh, and and yet, uh, I mean, this gets to whole conversations about America and guns and violence and everything else, but they believe in rehabilitation, and it often seems to work. Yeah, there's this, the prisons in Norway where... Mm-hmm. They can come and go as they please. They, mm-hmm. There's kitchens with knives. There's mm-hmm. there's a great uh, Vice documentary where they go and they take this prisoner from this uh, warden from Texas, and there's a they take him to this prison. I mm-hmm. think it's in Norway, and uh, people had, had murdered people, and th- there were no guards. 
and they're in this house and they're like cooking dinner together and then they go play guitar in the band room and they play video games and the warden is like these people have knives you can't let them have knives they're gonna kill each other and the guy's like no they don't do it they they're they understand that they're here to be rehabilitated well a lot of a lot of people a lot of say that the, the violence in prison is also caused by the way prisons exist and what the life is like in prisons um but the numbers that you were talking about are, are, are disproportionate to overcharging and to the nature of how the justice system works. Yeah. You know, and, and those numbers of the millions don't pertain to murder, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I, think the, I think that the, boy, the, having seen what I've seen, the punishment of a life in prison is enormously grim. Oh, it's, it, it, there's, it, the, there's the line that you use in the movie, and it's in the magazine article, where um, Todd says, you know, uh, about solitary confinement, he says, walk into your kitchen and spend the entire day there. Yeah. Now imagine you're spending the rest of your life there. Well, think, like, of how, think of how hard it is for you and me to spend five minutes alone, yeah. or 10, yeah. or 10 days, or now 10 years. I mean, the absence of that kind of... Uh, you know, life force around you. I, it, it's 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 as brutal as could be imagined. Do you think that there's there is going to be? Do you think it's possible? I mean, one of the problems with with prisons in America is that they have largely become privatized. Um, and ironically, not ironically, pathetically, I think uh, that privatization originally started with the Thirteenth Amendment, where they still wanted the ability to make black people work for free and. Right. The people who had run the um, the cotton farms took yep. over the prisons, and now it's now you have a system where there the people who run the prisons. I mean, maybe sociopaths, maybe not, but they are incentivized to mm-hmm. ensure that prisoners do not get out because they're working for seven cents an hour. Right? Do you is there enough of a you know, one of the problems I think with, I mean, when you talk about American guns, the, the problem that there, the, the reason why there has never been really a an anti-gun movement is because statistically the chances of me walking out my front door and getting shot uh, or going to a restaurant and getting shot are tiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so therefore I'm not going to fight for this thing that is probably not going to happen to me. And I think that, um, and I say that mm-hmm. about the general public, and I think the question is, is, the chances of people, especially white, powerful people, ending up in prison are slim. And therefore... Or certainly the kind of prisons you're describing. Yes, it's certainly the kind of prisons we're describing. So therefore, is there enough incentive? And, or if the, and if there isn't, how do you make enough incentive uh, within America to change it? Because you brought up Mothers Against Drunk Driving. That, mm-hmm. was an, that was an instance where people were like, my child is going to get killed. Right. And that is a perfect reason why enough people came together. Mm-hmm. And thousands and thousands of kids were. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the Vietnam War, I think, you know, took the turn toward its closure when the children of the middle class were finally being drafted. And it wasn't just the children of the poor and, and, uh, and, uh, and the inner cities. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that, but do you think that there, what do you think it takes for America to realize that there is this, this dark dystopian world with millions of people, mostly poor, mostly black, mostly Spanish, who are being 
treated like worse than animals, quite literally worse than animals. Um, uh, what ha- what has to happen for them to want to change that? Oh, you know, I, I, it, it's when I set out to try to do something, which is to say a movie, and you know that that you you you're having done a certain number of them, you um, what you know is there's there's no way to measure what the effect of what you do might be. Hmm. You know that you're maybe adding your voice to a rising chorus, but you don't know where the tipping point is, but you're doing something. And I, and I found that actually the first time I went to Africa and when I saw what was around me and I talked to, you know, the, the, how it shakes up your categories and you look at poverty really in the face and you look at despair. And, and I talked to, was surrounded by some people from NGOs and they saw my sort of um, hand wringing about this. And in the nicest way, um, they said, well, just get your head out of your own ass and do something. Hmm. And, and, and the, the idea of doing something, which is meta kind of what this movie is also about, hmm. uh, is all that you can do. What's remarkable is it has a tonic effect on your own attitude toward the world. So I, I, am, I, I don't know enough about prison reform to um, suggest what has to be done to make, the, how, make it be known to the world. But when I read David's article and I was infuriated, I said, well, what can I do? And the truth is, this is what I can do. I can only do this, mm. but I could do something. Yeah. And, and if there were that notion of service inculcated into people, it was the, to me, it's the loss of ethics classes and, and, and uh, civic classes and schools and things like that. Because where do you get that sense of, of, participating in society or belief that you can have some agency. Where does that come from? Obviously your parents possibly, but where else? I mean, or you get it from a bully pulpit, John Kennedy standing up there and say, ask not, you know, what your country can do for you. I mean, that's the, that's the horror of Trump too. Is it that role at the, at, at, as a sort of um, a spiritual father is important and, and it is important to six-year-olds or 10-year-olds who are looking at the world or millennials now looking at the world, thinking of what, what is the world or what can I do? So, I mean, maybe it's Pollyannish to talk about inspiration, but we need it. What, uh, um, when you think about this, this film specifically, um, is the, was there a moment that, I guess, infuriated you, A, or gave you hope? the most while making the movie or a part of the story were there parts of the story that you well yeah i mean i look at i mean look when i read his letters and i saw this man who had never been really exposed to any kind of real um enlightened thought or literature uh as he started to read as i saw it change him as his exposure to elizabeth began to change him uh that's an argument for rehabilitation, and it was inspiring. And in fact, the fact that these two people, these isolated people, lonely people, create something transcendent in a friendship or, or reach out to each other and find some connection amidst the, the existential loneliness that we all have, I find beauty in that. Hmm. 
Does is does it? Uh, this is kind of a random, but I guess uh, more existential question in itself. Does did the movie or the story or what happened to him uh, make you question if there's a higher purpose to all this, or is it was it a all which this this life this, this which is thing. what's the this, this what's your this pronoun life, there this <laughs> this this because huh. it's like you look at these moments and you look at children dying you mm-hmm. look at people being put to death that didn't do the thing that they are charged with doing and you wonder if we're just little cockroaches spinning around on this earth with with <laughs> I told you this is going to be a random more existential yeah, question it's all but, right I'm but, there but um but it just you know it. I, and then I guess you look at Elizabeth and you think, oh, okay, well, there is goodness in this world. You know, I, well, I mean, the, you, you either take the view from Lear, which is what is like flies to wanton gods that kill us for their sport, or you think that you take the Forrester epigram of only connect. And I think if you're going to look for the meaning of life, you're going to be pretty sadly disappointed. Um, <laughs> but, but I do believe you can create meaning and then mm. this this is going to get a little bit soppy maybe but but um we are little forest creatures huddled in some divine apathia there is no um explanation that we can ever have but there's dignity and beauty in finding each other and and in trying to make a joyous noise in this brief moment that we have together that's art yeah and, and that's love and and yeah, it's it's under the shadow of the Damoclean sword about to come down on your neck. But how do you get through the day if you live only in anticipation of it? You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So as you all listen to podcasts, I listen to podcasts too. And one of my favorites is called Gangster Capitalism. So there is a dark, dark side to the American dream, and it's not pretty. From C13 Originals, the team behind the number one podcast, Root of Evil, there's a new series out that I am obsessed with called Gangster Capitalism that takes us into the unflinching world of white-collar corruption. As a reporter from the New York Times who covered this stuff for many, many years, it was astounding to me what people get away with in the white-collar world. And this is going to be a, a crazy look at one of the craziest scandals of our time, the college admissions scandal, also known as Operation Varsity Blues. So this podcast exposes Hollywood celebrity CEOs and college admissions scam artists in schemes involving bribery, money laundering, and fraud. It's from award-winning documentarian Andrew Jenks as he covers the scandal as it unfolds. With each episode, he's going to take us deeper into the investigation and into the inner workings of how the rich cheat the academic system. It's truly disgusting what they've gotten away with and what they've gotten away with for so long and the smugness with which they've gotten away with it. But he's going to help try to answer the question, how did this happen and where do we go from here? So you should check out... Gangster Capitalism Episode 1 is available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, when you look back at all of the films that you've done, uh, this one is kind of more focused on a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, uh, it's reporting that goes into it and so on. Uh, has this led you to want to do more movies like this? Or? Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was really... I mean, two things about that i mean the answer is yes uh because you know you're you're writing within an armature that is already 
you know, strong and, and truthful. But it's also a reaction to what movies have become and, and you know, the scale of the kind of movies that one can do is hugely diminished now if they are serious or sophisticated or, or have any kind of ambition, unless they have superheroes or sequels or whatever. And these stories are available and, and usually in, in, a, in a context that is a little bit more limited and, 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 and you can wrap your arms around them and possibly raise the money to do them uh, when you can't in the sort of more epic canvases. So, do you, and uh, is that something that, that's something that has changed as of late, right? It's oh, not yeah. something that... No, it's, it's, it's been the last number of years, but, but it certainly it, it, was, it came along with the, the purchase of the studios by the multinationals is where it began. And when they began giving them P&L statements, having to meet quarterly numbers. And I had an amazing thing happen to me after Blood Diamond. Um, Alan Horn, who's a very nice man, and I had done a movie for them before that had done really well. And they allowed me to do Blood Diamond at a real scale. And the movie did well, but it wasn't through the roof. And probably when they did the bookkeeping, the movie had made $30 million for the studio. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> but he said to me, uh, we're not going to be able to make these movies anymore. And I said, well, why? He said, because that doesn't move the needle of the stock price. That's crazy. And he was under the thumb of management <clears throat> to yeah. do a certain thing and to deliver in a certain way. And they each slot of a movie in the studio has the potential of making three or $400 million. So they would rather lose a hundred on one and make 300 on more. Those are the multiples that they're dealing with as opposed to devoting all of their resources to something that then was only more incremental. I've been covering um, the disruption of industries for the past 15 years. Okay. And, well, there you and, go. And I've watched it happen to the music industry. I watched it happen to journalism. I watched it happen to publishing. It is hap It is going to happen to this industry and and all people can talk about is is like agents and packaging and it's like you are about to be demolished unless you change something and uh and how do you, when what, what what would that change look like where i mean uh, well i think that there's going to be massive changes from a technological standpoint i think that the number of people that you know you walk onto any tv or movie set today and and there are a lot of people that do not need to be there and you mm -hmm. go through the process of as you know writing a script and 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 then the the number of people who touch it who had they not touched it mm -hmm. it would actually be a better film mm -hmm. or tv show there's all these things and i think that you know when we look at automation coming uh a lot of people in creative industries are going to be automated it's funny last night i um uh i'd watched the movie and we were laying in bed, my wife and I, and I felt a, like a tremor. And I was like, oh, is that an earthquake? And I quickly pulled out my phone and I Googled like earthquake Los Angeles. And, and I see this article that pops up on the LA Times website. And it says, uh, you know, a 3.2 magnitude earthquake took place at 9.42 p.m., uh, 100 yards. It was, and it's this whole article. In the very end, it said this article was written by an algorithm. It, it wasn't written by a human being wow. because you don't need a human being to write an, an, a story when there's numbers. Wow. So you look at, and then it's also like they're doing that with stock um, stories. You know, on Thursday, Apple stock hit an all-time high of blah, blah, yeah. blah, based on this article is written by an algorithm. So I think that you're eventually going to start to see that happen 
more and more in creative spaces, and uh, and I think that's where a massive disruption happens. But who knows? Wow. Not saying you and I will be out of a job, but we might be. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So we have a last, a few last questions, sure. and, and then we'll let you go. Um, uh, are there any things that, as now the movie's done, you know, the the it's all packed away and ready to be seen by the world. Are there things that you lay in bed at night, aspects of the story that you think about still? Um, yeah. I, I, one thing that was a challenge to me had to do with, with the portrayal of solitary. In other words, I think a lot of us as artists, writers, have, painters have talked about dreams a lot and nightmares. We, we can point to any number of really talented people who have addressed that. I'm not sure we've, we've thought a lot about daydreams or, or what it might be to be in that circumstance when you are left mm, yeah. alone. And what does that look like and what does that feel like? And having done it and having tried to do a little bit of it with Jack, um, and by the way... What do you mean try to do a little bit? Of- well, in, in, when he's in solitary, try yeah. to, to talk about what the effects of that might yep. be. And, and technology, by the way, played a part in this because had we been making a traditional movie where the film is... X number of minutes, and you have to reload the mags. We were able to do a couple of things that were very improvisational, where we would sit there for a couple of hours or more, and just let it roll, wow. and see what happened. Hmm. And so that he, as an actor, could go deeper and not feel the burden of being presentational. Was he locked in a cell when you did that? Mm-hmm. Yep. And how did he say it felt? Well, that's what's in the movie. It's it's, it. and he would try to, you know, it's it's inevitably compressed. You're only doing it for a night yeah, or two. Yeah, yeah. But even that is so much more than what you're accustomed to doing as an actor where you suddenly feel the intensities of performance and trying to be presentational about a thing. I think what comes up is much more internal and, and, and ultimately interesting. And, and so I think about that in my own life now. Uh, so that's one thing that, that stayed with me. And, and the, the metaphor of life sentence and death sentence having to do with uh, disease and death. Um, what do you mean? By that? Well, the fact that we are all sentenced, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 we are all uh, living under a certain um, sentence of which we are unaware or unwilling to admit, and and I think that that has stayed with me. Hmm. Interesting. Do you uh, are there stories that you other stories you want to do now that you've been looking at that are in this realm? Mm-hmm. Other things that. I'm bad at that. I, I, you know, I, I just tend to get so immersed, and then it's done, and then I sort of look around as if I'm, you know, at sea, and there are no ships in sight, and I start swimming madly. I, I'm <laughs> <laughs> a good analogy. Yeah. I know that, that well. Yeah, of uh, course. Well, I mean, you do what I do. You, you, something is done, and you say, okay, now how do I reinvent my universe today? It's funny whenever I, whenever I finish a book, I literally like the next day I'll email my publisher. I'll be like, so what's the next one? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. She'll be like, we haven't even finished editing this and I'll be like, well, well, let's just get started on the next yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. I can't I can't be alone with my thoughts for too long. Exactly. That's the point. Um uh well thank you so much. This has been truly fascinating. Really fun. Uh yeah. the movie is incredible and uh I hope it uh goes on for great success and a lot yeah, of people yeah, see I mean, it and we'll, change their viewpoint. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those movies where uh you know we'll be at maybe maximum 150 theaters so it'll be available to be seen but if you don't see it within the first couple of weeks, it may indeed disappear. And, and it's really a crapshoot with movies like this because... I think that, but I think that this is a, you know, people talk about 
we still talk about serial. We still talk mm-hmm. about making a murder. I think we talk about these films or stories or books of injustice, and they, they infuriate people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that story from David Graham was 2009. And you remembered it. And I, I, I think I, not, I not, didn't just remember it. Like, I think about it every day. Wow. You know, I think it's like, it's a, a it makes me sad and my blood boil and all these things that, that it's not so much the injustice of what happened to him as the injustice that the people who did it to him did not serve justice. Mm. That's the part for mm-hmm. me. Like I, and it's what makes me think about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And well, at the end of the movie, there's an image and I won't describe exactly what it is, but it's about, it's about, um, uh, uh, you know, Rick Perry, but it's, it's during a, a, a Republican, uh, uh, debate, uh, and I don't see Rick Perry when I look at it. I see Mitch McConnell, I see Donald Trump, I see uh, uh, you know any number of people there, and 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 I that gets me galvanized. Yeah, it was a, a powerful. It was actually a really powerful moment. There are people that do that at the end of certain films, and you're like, yeah, that didn't work. But this one, I was just like, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really hey, appreciate it's my it. My pleasure. Really fun. Thanks. Thanks to my guest this week, Ed Zwick. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. If you're going to leave a negative review, then just don't even bother at all. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors this week, Quip. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.